0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and
1: Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. We're in the midst of a four-part series on artificial intelligence and the future of humanity. Last time, we spoke to Cade Metz about the people behind the latest advancements in AI. And we heard the story of Jeff Hinton and his colleagues, who spent a lot of time in the background convinced that building an artificial intelligence that was based upon neural networks would prove fruitful. Eventually, they were right. But for many decades, a lot of people just thought it couldn't be done. This week, we're going to talk to another person who took an unconventional route to be where he is today who started out as a computer pioneer and then ended up as a neuroscientist, developing a new theory of intelligence and essentially of how the brain works. Jeff Hawkins is the co-founder of Numenta, which is a neuroscience research company. I don't think it's a coincidence that he forged out on his own. And in some ways, he was better placed to do so than a lot of other maverick thinkers because he invented the Palm Pilot. His focus is on the neocortex, And his goal is to enable machine intelligence technology based on his theory of how the neocortex functions. And I should say, it's not just his theory. There's a lot of evidence to support his model. And essentially, the idea is that we don't just have cells that respond to one thing or another or act in a vacuum. When we've tried to find a particular part of the brain that is responsible for complex functions like human intelligence, we have simply failed. Because, of course, that's not how the brain works. In his new book, A Thousand Brains, Jeff Hawkins outlines not just a new theory of intelligence, but a model for understanding how the neocortex functions. And perhaps model is the right word, because in his view, how we experience the world, how we think, is by developing mental models of things. These have been ideas that have been present in cognitive science for decades. But in many ways, it took a person who started out as an engineer to then think about how our knowledge of how the neocortex works might be utilized to create even more intelligent artificial intelligence. Jeff Hawkins, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
2: Thank you, Andrea. It's great to be here.
1: So I wanted to start with your journey into neuroscience, which which led, I think, probably, ho- you know, hopefully this is the culmination of the work, because if this is just one of your side hustles, I'm going to feel very bad about myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you have this like universal theory of the brain that you present very eloquently um so but let's talk about you know some of your early struggles because from at least the way you describe it in the book, you didn't have success all along the way um in your attempt to to really bridge neuroscience and understand the brain.
2: yeah, it was um it was really a surprising um well my my career path is a bit surprising, uh, but I was surprised by how it happened. I fell in love with the idea of studying the brain when uh, right after I graduated from college. So I did not study neuroscience; I studied electrical engineering, and I decided, oh, I, I fell in love with the brain. I said, I'm going to make this my career, and so I said, well, I'll just, you know, I'll go to, uh, I'll go back to graduate school and, and um, you know, and study and, and pursue a, a scientific career. Um, I tell it's it's a long story, uh, but. Basically, I ended up at um, UC Berkeley in a graduate student program there, and what I, um, I wrote a, a proposal for what I wanted to work on for my thesis, and uh, which is ambitious, no doubt about it. I said I was interested in studying uh, the neocortex um, and you know how it works, functionally understanding how the neural circuitry, what it's doing, what its functions are, and I had an approach to, to studying it. I wanted to understand how the neocortex made predictions. Um, and use that as a way of figuring this out. So uh, I wrote a, I was asked by the graduate, uh, the head of the graduate program there to write a proposal and I did, and he had, he had read it and several well, of his faculty read it and then he came back and says, well, this is really great. This is a great problem. You should really work on this. Uh, it's one of the most important problems you know in science and uh, your, your approach seems sound, but you can't do it. Uh, he says, I don't think you can do it here at Berkeley and I don't think you can do it anywhere. <laughs> And I was I was not prepared for that, and it turned out that I wanted to study a bit more of a theorist. So I mean, like, uh, the theoretical components, you know, work with experimental data, of course, but really still focus on theory. And back then, um, it just wasn't viewed as something you could do. And and he said, you're not going to be able to find a lab to work in to do this, and you won't be able to get funding. Um, and so you have to do something else in neuroscience first. And I said, "Whoa, <laughs> that's really crazy." Um, and I and I thought about that, but in the end, I decided that I didn't want to change my ambitions. And so I I figured I would um, I would take alternate approaches to a, a career in neuroscience, which is what I did. And I could talk about that if you want. But I went back in industry for a while with the idea that I'd return to academia in four years. Uh, but it turned out turned out it took a lot longer than that. <laughs>
1: I mean, this really is parallels a conversation I had with Cade Matz on uh, the trajectory of a neuroscientist's career named, or I guess I I, I guess he would I consider him a neuroscientist. Was maybe he wouldn't even consider himself that way? A computer scientist Jeff Hinton, who from very for you know very many decades kind of worked alone on an idea that you could create an artificial intelligence based on understanding the brain. And it sounded to me like that's what you wanted to do as well in the 80s at the MIT's well, AI lab. Was,
2: well, it really wasn't. I was really mostly interested in the brain. And uh, if I had to choose between working on AI and neuroscience, I'd pick neuroscience in a heartbeat. However, I felt very strongly back then that, um, and I was, remember I was an engineer, and I was, even back then, AI was a hot topic back in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. And I said, these guys aren't going to get there going this way. We have to understand how the brain works first. The brain is so complicated and so much more different than these these, uh, AI approaches that we're on. So I said to myself, well, you have to do it both. You know, you have to, in order to produce artificial intelligence, you're first going to have to figure out what what it is from a neuroscience point of view, what is intelligence. And so as an electrical engineer, I originally thought I might be able to get into the field quicker by applying to MIT in their AI lab. I said, "Okay, well, I, I can I can do that stuff. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a neuroscientist. I, I didn't study biology, so let me let me approach it from the AI point of view." And so that's when I applied. Before I went to Berkeley, I applied to MIT, and they rejected my, my application, and, um, and I was told why. They said, "Well, we don't believe the brain. We believe the brain is just a messy computer, and there's no point in studying it to figure what intelligence is." Those that's almost an exact quote from one of the professors I met. So that was very disheartening. And then I said, okay, i'm going to, I'm gonna do this biology route, and I started studying biology, and I took classes and I got myself
1: in a graduate program yeah, and a, and a lot of people agreed with that professor at MIT that you quote, um and it wasn't until, you know about two thousand and twelve when uh, you know Jeff Hinton's project started to really work, and they started to you know,
2: yeah, and of course, now the neural network as a technology for AI is is it's it's not really new, but it started to work, as you said, in two thousand and twelve. Um, but I still think it's a huge, uh, so far from what's going on in the brain that they're they're distant cousins, <laughs> at best. Um, and what's going on in the, in the human brain is far more complex, uh, orders of magnitude so than what's going on in today's artificial inter- uh,
0: neural networks.
1: So let's let's talk about that. So I mean, first, you know, also give us just the the reason why you know, you felt the need to address this issue of uh, intelligence. Because, of course, neuroscientists have been studying intelligence for many decades. And some would argue that we've come to a kind of understanding of, you know, the different features of intelligence and the fact that, you know, it's hard to measure. um, But there is there does seem to be this central G factor or general factor it seems to underlie a lot of the ways in which we test intelligence. But, you know, why don't you give us your view of why you think that that approach was just misguided?
2: Well, uh, my interest is a lesson from like a, uh, an educator's point of view or a psychologist's point of view. I want to understand the, the details of how, you know, how brains function, what is going on in my head when I'm thinking, what is going on in my head when I'm speaking I'm, very, I'm a sort of a reductionist in many ways. And I say, okay, we can understand this. We can understand the circuitry in the cortex, or the circuitry in the brain. We can figure out what's going on there. There should be ways of expressing this in knowledge. We should be able to recreate it. You don't really understand something until you can recreate it. Um, you can have all kinds of theories, but until you actually say, I know how to build this thing, or I know how exactly how it's working. I can make uh, empirical tests and so on. And that, in the field of intelligence, which is really not my field. My field is really understanding how the you know, cortex works, which is the organ of intelligence. But, um, but the, f- the people who study intelligence often, uh, in a more abstract point of view, really just sort of ignore the details of the brain. My interest was like, no, I wouldn't understand how this thing works in detail. And if I do that, I should be able to build machines that work on the same principles.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about that difference in approach because I think it's really important uh, because I think for a lot of years, cognitive psychologists in particular have struggled <laughs> to really define and understand intelligence i think because so much of it is just not available to us consciously and so when we're testing intelligence we can you know we can, it, it can in some ways can only get us so far but when when you understand sort of the the neuroanatomy of the neocortex and how that might work, that gives us another layer of information that I think can be really important. And, and as you described in your book, can be one of the real missing links. So yeah. So so tell us, yeah, tell us about the neocortex. Okay.
2: So, you know, first of all, just physically, what is it? It's, you know, it's a, it's a part of the brain. Um, It's about 70% of the volume of a human brain. It's the big wrinkly thing. If you look at a human brain, it's covering the rest of the brain. If you were to cut it away from the rest of the brain, it's about the size of a large dinner napkin and about twice as thick, two and a half millimeters thick. It's not the most neurons in the brain It only has about 18 billion neurons. Uh, that's quite a few, but, um, and um, it is, it is the organ we most associate with um, high level thought and intelligence. It's clear that all high level vision, not all vision, but all high level vision. Like if, if you're looking at something and can describe it to me and, and so on, that's going on in the cortex, all high-level um, language, all kinds of language, whether it's languages, spoken language, written language, musical language, the language of mathematics, it's all happening in the neocortex, engineering, mathematics, science, and so on. It's, 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 it's the, it's, you can't understand it in isolation, of course, but in some sense, since it's such a dominant feature of the cortex and it's responsible, all these things we think about as intelligence, we can call it the organ of intelligence. So that's what it is physically, Uh, For many years, people, until today, people think of it sort of like some sort of computer, like it gets some inputs from your senses, it processes that input, and then it acts to do something. And certainly that happens sometimes, and uh, many parts of the brain act that way. But that's not the, one of the first things you learn about the neocortex is that's not really the best way of thinking about it. The best way of thinking about the neocortex is to understand what it's, it's building a model of the world. It turns out to know anything, to see things, to touch things, to uh, understand sounds, to walk around in buildings, uh, to, anything we do requires that the brain actually has a model of all these things in your head. And it's, it's 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 literally a model of the world. And that's the way to think about the function of the neocortex. And intelligence, in this point of view, is, is to say, like, well, how sophisticated is our model of the world? What does it include? What is the extent of it? Uh, so humans know things about the world that other animals don't. We know about the broader universe. We know about DNA. We know about evolution. Um, and so we have a, a, a very large model of the world and it's a very rich model of the world. So intelligence is all about this model building. When you have a model of the world, then you can act. You can say, well, how would I want to achieve something? And you can use the model in your head to say, well, if I did this, this would happen. If I did that, something else would happen. Or how do I get from... My, the point I'm in now to a position I want to be in a year from now. And we can do this planning because we have a model of how the world behaves, everything in the world. Um, and so it's, we now understand that the number of things the neocortex knows about the world is just huge. I mean, it's everything you know pretty much that you can tell me or can, you can relate to me in some way is stored in the neocortex. And that's a very, very large number of things. Um, and it, most people don't realize how many things they know until you start trying to enumerate them. <laughs> but it's uh, that that's, the, that's the key thing. And well, what we did. Uh, so I came to this understanding about model building about uh, in um, really about uh, almost 40 years ago. But the key thing we've, we've been working on and the discoveries we've made recently are, are sort of the details of how that model is constructed by neurons.
1: I mean, the truth is, is that if you think about like your visual system. It's a pretty poor indicator of of, or it has it has doesn't have a lot of information that it gets from the outside world. Right. We have these little cells in our retina that, you know, fire or don't when there's a photon of light that triggers them. You know, we can kind of detect edges. And we have this like two dimensional retina, which then we do a lot of post processing work on that information in our in our neocortex that basically gives us the subjective experience of seeing Um, And, you know, our our brains fill in a lot of details. Like, for example, we're legally blind almost everywhere except in the center of our field of view, Um, you know, and we reconstruct uh, objects and, and color and all of this, all of this stuff. And this has been described understanding how all of that works to give us this seamless subjective experience is really at the heart of what people call the hard problem of consciousness. Like how does the brain bind together all of this information from such a, really an impoverished stimulus? And what you're describing is it's because it, we build these models.
2: So first of all, it's, you make a good observation. Our inputs are very impoverished, right? Uh, you know, I, you point to eyes, eyes are highly distorted, um, uh, image that's projected to the brain, it's full of all kinds of holes and, and things that are missing, blood vessels and so on. And yet, and, and our eyes are moving all the time. So there's this impoverished input and our eyes are moving all the time, yet the world seems rich and stable. And that's because, this is, I know this sounds weird, but it's true, and I'm not the only person to come to this conclusion. What we perceive is the model in our head. We're not actually, we look out, we think we're perceiving the world as it is, but that's not really true. We're perceiving our model. And the the impoverished input is how we build this model, and it's how we invoke the correct states of the model. So I have this impression that I'm in my bedroom right now, but I'm not seeing my bed, but I know it's there. How do I know it's there? Because the model in my head tells me it's there. I'm looking out at things outside, and I say, well, I think that's a part of a tree. I don't really know that, but that's the model in my head says that. Even something as simple as color doesn't really exist in the real world. Color is a fabrication of the brain, it's it relates to properties of the real world but what's coming into your brain is just a bunch of neural spikes on neurons and those spikes that represent different parts of visual aspect all look the same there's no color coming into your brain and and yet i perceive this green or red or something like that these are all parts of the model of the of the world that are in your head so that's what we perceive
1: one thing that i you know i find really important to highlight is that we assume that the model that we have in our brains is the model that everybody has in everybody's brains. And we're learning now that people with neural differences, like um, people, for example, who have uh, sensitivities uh, or who are on the autism spectrum, actually build very different models in their brains, which means that the way that they interact with the world is very different. Yeah,
2: and you, and, and you don't have to be on a spectrum to have those differences. I'll give you a real simple example. You remember recently there was the, there was the whole internet meme about the, the, the dress, whether it was gold or blue or something like that. Remember that? Those are different people would have the exact same input coming into their eye and would see a completely different color. <laughs> That's a very simple example, but it just tells you that that, that is just, what color is is very subjective. And, and, and the, the best theories are that some people, depending on how they're raised and what kind of colors they saw and so on, they'd have these different biases. I give an example in the book about how we can take historical facts and you can arrange them differently and you end up with different beliefs about the world. You know, a very simple example there is you could take a set of historical facts and you can put them on a timeline and a timeline tells you about uh, temporal correlations, what things might be correlated because they happen near each other in time, but you can take the same set of facts and put them on a map and the map tells you potentially correlations in space. Um, and same facts, uh, different arrangement. I can teach one child one set of things, one of them, and we'll form different beliefs when we make different conclusions about things. So it, it's it's just natural that depending how we expose to things, um, we end up with different beliefs about the world.
0: Across America, BP supports more than two hundred seventy five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing
1: So let's now talk about how these models are mapping onto the actual neurons of the neocortex, and and I really liked in your book how you have you kind of couch this this information gathering through these aha moments that you had. There are three aha moments in particular, and I, I think that's really helpful to 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 bring people into your way of thinking. So let's let's tell us about those three aha moments and what they mean. Okay, so. Um... Sure.
2: The first one uh, we've already talked about, and this is the idea that the cortex is building a model of the world as opposed to being like a computer. And I didn't know this when I first got into this field, but many years ago, actually, when I was at Berkeley, uh, I had that realization and other people have had it, too. So today it's not it's not so unique, although many people don't don't realize it. But that was the first one, and I and with these aha moments, you can re, they're very poignant memories. So I can remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I had this um, this realization. The second one is a bit more um, uh, techie in terms of the neuroscience world. Uh, we were asking the question of how we were studying the neocortex, asking how it makes predictions. Because if you have a model of the world, the model is a predictive model. So your cortex, your brain, is constantly predicting what it's going to see or feel or hear every. You're not aware of most of these predictions, or just and constantly happening on every sensory modality, and um, and we know that's true because if anything changes, even the slightest bit, you notice it. So um anyway, so we were asking how how are predictions made in the cortex? Like, what is the physical manifestation of a prediction? Is it is it a predictive neuron that says "I fire" when you're predicting something? Well, there are some instances of that, but what we discovered. The very surprising result um, is that um, most of the predictions that occur inside the neuron in the in the neocortex, and I'm just talking about the neocortex. There's these pyramidal cells there, which is the dominant type of neuron in the neocortex. That most of the predictions are occurring inside of individual neurons. It's an internal state of the neuron. It's not an external extra circuitry, or you know, it wasn't like here's the prediction circuitry or here's the prediction neurons. It's like you no know, every every pyramidal neuron. Can actually, is actually trying to predict its own activity, and this is why we're not aware of most of these predictions because we can't be aware of what's going inside of neurons. Um, so that was that was the second discovery, and we wrote a, a, a we wrote a paper about that, and and uh, it's done very well, and it's for, for the first time sort of concretely explained why neurons have you know 10,000 10, synapses on them, the connections on them. The third discovery, the third aha moment, which is really the genesis of the book that I just wrote, is we are trying to understand how the brain makes predictions when you move. And so like, if I'm touching something with my finger and I'm about to move it, that's my, my, an example I use in the book is a coffee cup. I had a coffee cup in my hand, and I was touching with one of my fingers. And I knew that if I moved my finger to the top of the cup, I'd predict the, the rounded edge. My brain would feel the rounded edge. I, can, I could even imagine. I can imagine what I'd feel. Uh, I, I can do it with my eyes closed. And I knew if I moved it to the side of the cup, I would feel the handle. And if I moved it to the bottom of the cup, I'd feel the a rough, unglazed edge of the bottom. And so I asked myself, well, what does the cortex need to know to make that prediction? It needs to know a couple things. One is it needs to know it's touching a coffee cup, right? So it needs to know that. Or you won't be able to make these predictions. The other thing it needs to know, and this was the surprising part, it needs to know where the finger will be on the coffee cup after it stops moving. So I can make this prediction before my finger actually reaches the new location, and it needs to be at know where it will be on the coffee cup. Now That requires, it matters where the finger is relative to the coffee cup, not where my finger is relative to my body. It doesn't matter where the coffee cup is relative to me. It, there has to be a representation of the brain of where my finger is relative to the coffee cup. And in engineering parlance, that's called a reference frame. A reference frame is like a grid, if you will, that surrounds, you you can use the specified locations. And so there's a reference frame that's attached to the coffee cup. Your neurons in your head have to be creating this. And then we realized that since every different part of your sensory organs, like every part of my, I might have five or 10 fingers touching the coffee cup at once, and each one's making its own prediction, that each part of the cortex is representing the input from different parts of my, my skin. Each part of that has to know its own reference frame, its own location in the reference frame of the coffee cup. So we started realizing that we just immediately realized that the, the neocortex is infused of reference frames. And now we understand how it applies to vision and hearing and high-level thought. And it turns out that the neocortex builds its model of the world using reference frames. And a good part of the book is dedicated to explaining what that means.
1: Yeah, so I think we need to explain what that means. Because I think, you know, I think that, you know, the 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 I understand how, you know, what you're just the example you just gave relates to maybe actions and, and, you know, motor movement and, you know, what's happening as we try to move around the world. But I don't understand, or at least, you know, please explain to us how that might affect things like decision-making.
2: Okay, so let's get there. But before we get there, let me just expand it a little bit on the sensory side first, if I can. I talked about touch. Let's let's talk about vision, because I think this will be helpful, and then I'll answer your question directly. We tend to think of vision as like taking this picture of the world. But that's not true. You now understand it's 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 different. It's like the vision, your retina is like your skin. The way to think of your skin is there's a whole bunch of little sensory patches that each are able to move and touch different parts of things. And the retina is the same way. It's a bunch of little patches of of photoreceptors that go to each one is processed sort of each patch is sort of processed separately in the cortex. And it's almost like if you were to look at the world through a straw, a skinny straw you could only see a little bit at once and you'd have to move the eye around and the straw around to see different things. Well, that's like touching the the world with one finger and you have to move your finger around. But since we're, we use our whole retina most of the time, it's like, it's like grabbing the coffee cup with both hands at once. And so you have all this input going on. So I just want to make sure that this idea that there's locations associated with or reference frames associated with each input applies to everything applies to the retina as well. Even though the retina looks like it's one thing, it's actually thousands of little pieces of, patches of sensory input.
1: So I understand how, you know, a a reference point might be, we can think of a reference point when it comes to vision now or movement. um, But we can also think of it when we think about semantic concepts. So for example, you know, if I think of a fire truck, there are other kind of references that come up straight away. So red, ladder, fire, hot. What about
2: things that are very abstract, like mathematics or democracy or humanity? Yeah, tell (laughs) us. Tell me about that. So, so here's the thing. So, we studied one of the underlying themes of our work is we we uh, subscribe or ascribe to a theory put out many years ago by Vernon Mountcastle. He's one of the most famous neurophysiologists of all time, and he pointed out that the different parts of the neocortex look remarkably the same. He wasn't the first one to point that out, but he 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 articulated it more than anyone else. He says, you know, you look at a visual area and a language area and a, a somatosensory area or touch. They have this very complex structure in the neocortex, but it's the same structure. It's almost identical. There's variations, but there's so much in common that that they must be doing something the same. And so he said, he basically said an amazing hypothesis in 1979, I think it was. He says, well, all the parts of the neocortex look the same because they're actually doing the same thing. He says, what makes a visual area vision is because it's connected to a retina, and what makes a... Um, a touch area touches because it's connected to the skin, and uh, and he says you, I, he didn't know what that function was. What the cortex is based that if we can understand what a small section of the neocortex does, what he called the cortical column, we would understand how everything works. And so, if you look at something like the language areas of the neocortex or the prefrontal cortex involved in various sorts of high level decision making and so on, the structure is remarkably preserved. Again, there are differences, but the differences are small compared to the things that are common and it is complex so it's it, there's some common functionality that's going on throughout the neocortex this is sometimes called the common cortical algorithm it's debated people have trouble believing it's true but there's tremendous amount of evidence for it So we studied you know touch and vision and hearing because that was a way to us to sort of piece apart or tease apart what's going on in one section of the neocortex. But if if Mountcastle was true, then that same circuitry is being applied everywhere. And so we have to ask, well, what is is something like science or engineering or, you know, music have to do with vision, you know, and touch? Um, And so a good part of my book is sort of making that connection. the, the, The connection is as follows. To know what something looks like, you have to have knowledge about visual knowledge about that thing. And what we what we we believe is going on is that you have these reference frames in the cortex where um, associated with locations in on the object, the physical like locations on the object. You can assign um, what's there. You could say a, a coffee cup is because it's got a a side and a cylinder and a handle and so on in relative positions to each other. It's in, in a in a relative ref, in a reference frame with have relative positions to each other. So you're sort of building up this model of physical things. Well, it turns out that that's how the, we believe the cortex stores knowledge about everything. It stores knowledge about everything in reference frames. So even if I think about what where is knowledge about history stored, well, there's going to be the same neural mechanism that is used to describe the, the physical look or shape of a coffee cup can be used to describe where knowledge, factual knowledge, pieces of facts about the court about history are related to each other in in a reference frame. And the reference frames allow movement. The reference frame says, if I move in a particular way, I will go to a new location, and I'll know what's stored there. So uh, we can think of physical movement, like moving my finger or my eyes. But you can do this. The cortex can do this internally as well. It can can mentally move through reference frames, recalling facts about the world or recording knowledge. And so we believe, and, and I give examples of this in the book, but essentially, we believe that all knowledge is stored this way. In using the same underlying mechanism, even though some of it's going to relate to physical things in the world and some of it's not. But all inf- all knowledge about the world is, is stored in the same sort of structure, uh, the same sort of algorithmic uh, component if you using reference frames. And so then we can ask ourselves, oh, well, what does it mean to think? What does it mean to, to mentally uh, walk through a series of decisions and so on? What you're literally doing is you're moving through a series of locations in these reference frames, recalling the facts that are there, and you can try to achieve concepts in mathematics in the same way that you can try to um, achieve a concept by, you know, accomplish something by moving your finger. If I say, oh, I want to turn off my smartphone. I have to move my finger to a certain location and try to manipulate something. Well, if I want to accomplish something in mathematics, I physically, I move mentally through the same space, a similar type of space, a mathematical space, trying to achieve a certain result. So it's a bit foreign the concept, but it's a very powerful idea. And it explains this common cortical uh, algorithm and this common cortical um, anatomy, if you will, anatomy and physiology that we see everywhere.
1: So I just want to remind our listeners that um, Jeff's book, "A Thousand Brains: A New Theory of Intelligence," is now available. Uh, if you want an in-depth look in or into this uh, this idea and this theory, so so tell us why a thousand brains. I mean, I think we're starting to get the picture, but what is different about having, say, a thousand brains versus you know, one central brain that sits uh, as a lot of us think about it and kind of gets information from all these little models and, and, and then does something to it.
2: So why, why do we call it a thousand brains? Most people, including ourselves up to about, you know, six years ago, would assume that the model of the world in your head is, is just a monolithic model. It's like, this, you know, all the neurons in the, in the cortex all converge on one spot where you have this model of everything. And what we've learned is this is not true at all. It turns out that the model is distributed. So if I ask myself something like, well, where is my knowledge of, a, of an object such as a coffee cup? Um, it's distributed in thousands of models. Each column in the cortex is its own modeling system. And therefore, each one is uh, – there are many, many models of the coffee cup. There are models of what the coffee cup feels like. There are many models of what the coffee cup looks like. There are even models of what coffee cups sound like. And, um, and so these models, they reach a consensus that is – each one is trying to figure out what's going on in the world. Each one says, I'm not sure exactly what I'm feeling or what I'm seeing, but they vote. And it's the voting, and they reach a consensus by voting. It's the voting that we perceive. We don't perceive all the other the arbitration that goes underneath it. And so the thousand brains theory says it's just like we have thousands of models. Each of the cortical columns is like a little brain, if you will.
1: So the last question I had is that, you know, in your book, you talk about how we're at a turning point. Uh, that you know, we we have this this choice that we're facing about what our future is going to be. You know, do we do we stick to being kind of slaves to the biology of our brain, um, or do we use this newfound knowledge about how intelligence works to do something very different? And so, I wondered if you could answer that query. What what do you think is the future if we start to understand more deeply? about you know how intelligence works in the brain and how it's not necessarily tied to well I don't know is it yeah. tied to our biology
2: well it's the book most of the book is about the theory about how the brain works and the neocortex specifically and then there's a section all about ai uh, artificial intelligence and the third section of the book is uh, a broader look about intelligence and humanity and one of the things that th- this is something i thought about a lot and i wrote this because i I, I want more people to think about it. I want to have more conversations about this. But as I, I find myself, I, you know, I'm like you and many of your listeners. I love understanding about the world. I want to understand how everything works. I want to know the laws of physics. I want to understand how my brain works. I want to understand why we're here, how we got here, et cetera. And so we're the first species, literally, that has the ability to know these things. We're the only species that knows about the broader universe. We're the only species that knows the laws of physics. We're the only species that knows about evolution and DNA and and neurons and all these things, we have this tremendous knowledge of the world that we alone have been able to uh, gather. And so, but if you think about us, we have, we got here and our brains were, are, exist because um, we are biological uh, animals and brains evolved to help our genes replicate. And this is the sort of Richard Dawkins theory of uh, you know the selfish gene. Uh, we're here, our bodies are here, our brains are here to help our bodies, uh, our genes replicate. And that's great. It's how we got here. But is that what we want the future to be? Um, do we want the future to be all about gene replication? And, or do we want it to be something else? So to me, what makes us unique is our intelligence and our knowledge. And so we, if we ask ourselves, what is the ultimate destiny of our species? Uh, is, it, is it about just survival and gene replication and evolution? Or do we want to really focus on what's unique about us, which is our intelligence and our knowledge? And so I just explore that idea. And obviously, I find the the, the latter opportunity more interesting. Um, um, I find I'm I'm thrilled by being an intelligent species, intelligent animal. And that's the part I care most about. And that may not be true for other people, but that's how I feel about it. And so I at least wanted to start that conversation. um, uh, And that latter part of the book explores that idea in depth.
1: Jeff Hawkins, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds.
2: Uh, Andre, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me here. It's great talking to you.
1: So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. As I mentioned, this is part two in a four-part series about artificial intelligence. In part three, we're going to talk about the future of human work with Jamie Marisotis. And then we're going to turn to science fiction and ask what writers think might happen a hundred years from now. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yuxi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Charles Blyle, and Dale LeMaster. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time.